Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 986, air date October 16th, 2021. Some of our, some of the people at our, in our Citizens Restoring Liberty uh, group here are not familiar with you. Uh, could we get a, just a, a quick synopsis and introduction to who you are and how you got where you are? Sure. First of all, um, welcome to everyone. Uh, Rod, can you make your screen full screen? Uh, I, I guess you can't, right? Because you have other people calling in. But first of all, welcome to everyone. And as I understand, Rod, this is um, a, a group of uh, hardworking people who are nurses, healthcare workers. Is that right? Yeah, we're uh, patriots across the entire stripe. We do have uh, some nurses. We have some teachers. Uh, we have some school board members. And we also have, uh, you know, people like Scott and me, just regular Joes. Well, welcome, everyone. This, my name is Dr. Shiva Ayodure. Let me just give you a little bit of background. Um, I'm, I'm actually based here in Massachusetts in Cambridge. And my background goes back to uh, I grew up in New Jersey when I was uh, seven years old. I came here from India. But some of you may know, India has a very, very interesting system called a caste system. And you won't find a lot of Indians like me here, meaning my parents uh, and I were quite fortunate to come here. India has this deplorable caste system where your birth determines what you're supposed to do for the rest of your life. So the fact that my parents um, made it out of India is quite extraordinary. It speaks to a lot about their resilience and who they were. My dad had grown up in war-torn Burma. My mother um, you know, it was a woman in the 19, you know, 40s at a time when women weren't even supposed to get educated. So both of them were quite extraordinary people. So we came here when I was seven years old and I grew up in the working class neighborhoods of New Jersey. By the time I was 14, I had ended up going to, I was not only, you know, reasonably good at math and science, but I was also played baseball and mowed lawns like your typical American kid. But by the time I was 14, I started working full-time as a research fellow at, um, at what is now known as Rutgers University as a, uh, as a medical researcher. I, I had the year before I'd gone to New York University as a 14-year-old kid. This is the 1970s when computers were just coming. And so I was reasonably good at that. So I ended up getting a job while in high school working full-time doing medical research tr to try to understand why babies were dying in their sleep. Some of you may know there's an interesting disease called sudden infant death syndrome. And um, so that was back in 1978 when computers were just new. And I ended up creating um, a way to understand sleep patterns. So I uh, got really good at math and I started applying it to medicine. Now, while I was at that medical school, and by the way, this was a very small medical school in the heart of Newark, New Jersey, where nothing is supposed to come out of there, right? Predominantly African-American people, a very poor neighborhood. But in the center of Newark, New Jersey was this medical college. Well, anyway, while I was doing that research, I was also given another task. Anyone in the audience there who's over the age of 40 will remember there was a very interesting uh, system, the way that people communicated um, in large organizations or small organizations. Some of you may remember there was two ways. One was with a phone. Remember that? The hardwired phone, uh, not cell phones. The fax, it was actually another one, was just coming, but you had this thing called the inner office paper-based mail system. Uh, typically in every one of these doctor's offices was a secretary, uh, always a woman, 
who had a typewriter and she'd write something called a memo to, from, subject, right? And sometimes she'd create a carbon paper called a carbon copy. And if she had to do five carbon copies, CCs, she would be there typing away all night. And uh, you had uh, the inbox, you had the outbox. To the young people out there, these were physical boxes. They weren't just virtual things. Okay, you had a trash can. Was it, this was called the inner office mail system. You had pneumatic tubes. Um, I was asked to convert that entire system as a 14-year-old kid to the electronic version. And we're not talking about simply exchanging text messages. We're talking about that entire system. So I did that as a 14-year-old, named that system email, wrote 50,000 lines of code. And uh, this was before I went to MIT. And uh, this system was used throughout the organization. And when I came to MIT, so I didn't even know what MIT was before I applied. Um, and when I came there, you know, they had listed this kid who had created this first email system. And I ended up getting the first United States copyright for the invention of email. And this was in 1981 when the patent office uh, and, the, and the courts didn't even accept patents, software patents. It was only in 1994 where software patents were allowed. Um, patenting allows you to get royalty on every piece of software. Copyright doesn't protect that, but no one knew what software was. Otherwise, I'd be a gazillionaire today. But anyway, I was recognized as the inventor of email by the United States government. And then the rest became history. But email was really used as an office application. Never spoke about it. You know, I was always brought up to be a good Indian, humble Indian kid, right? Uh, anyway, my journey uh, from that point on when I came to MIT was I went in and out of MIT over multiple decades, got four degrees. I was always very interested in systems. You see, email was a system. Email is not the simple exchange of text messages. So I was very interested in systems and I was very particularly inter interested in um, understanding why this caste system existed, why there was oppression, why there was injustice in the world. So I went in and out of MIT, got four degrees, my undergraduates in electrical engineering, computer science, went and started a company, came back to MIT, did two master's degrees, one in uh, mechanical engineering and another one in visual studies, went back. Um, and in 1993, while, while I was in the middle of my PhD, it looks like I couldn't get away from email. The Clinton White House, believe it or not, was getting tons of email. If you remember, 1993 was when the World Wide Web came. The Internet had existed, but the World Wide Web put a front end on the interface so you could use your mouse and point and click. And so that means the Internet became more of a consumer application. People started creating email for everyone else to use up until 19. 93 email was really an office application the email that i had created so by 1993 email volume started exploding the white house is getting tons of emails and they run a contest to see if someone could automatically read president clinton's email and categorize it i was the only graduate student i ended up winning that and i ended up leaving mit uh, and starting a company to automatically read and categorize email and that was called echo mail so what we call pattern recognition and that's what I'd been doing for many years, analyzing sleep patterns of babies, analyzing, um, you know, ultrasonic waves, um, speech patterns. So uh, analyzing email documents was no different or ha analyzing handwriting on bank checks. So I had done all these projects. So I ended up leaving MIT, started a company called Echo Mail, and we grew that to around 240 million in value, started at bottoms up. No one helped us. People thought this was crazy. We had clients like Nike and um in oregon and and uh you know every major company people would send us their email we would automatically figure out what was in it route it etc so anyway 
came back to MIT in 2007. I had always loved medicine and systems. And I came back in 2003, I'm sorry. And in 2003, something very interesting was going on. Um, the world of biology was changing. Um, and this is where the notion of systems comes. You see, science uh, up until then thought that the number of genes in your body is determines the complexity. So 1993, we knew that a small worm had around 20,000 genes. And so when the Human Genome Project started in 1993, we thought that a human being must have a lot more genes than a worm, right? So we're more complex, more genes. And it turned out that when the Genome Project ended in 2003, we only have 20,000 genes, the same protein coding genes, the same as a worm. So this flipped biology on its head because people realize that the complexity is not a function of the number of parts. This is a very important concept to understand, that people always think more parts, more complexity. But what you find out is the reason a human being is more complex than a worm, we have the same number of genes, but it's the number, the genes create proteins and they interconnect in very, very profoundly different ways. So the real issue is the interconnections between things in the universe is what creates complexity. I could give you 10 marbles and a bunch of string and one person may just put the marbles one after the other, very simple complexity. Someone may use all the string to connect every marble with another marble, right? So it's a number of interconnections, very important thing in systems. So when we look at the world, the elites around try to teach us uh, a way to look at the world by just looking at a little piece of something so they can manipulate us. And, but when you start looking at the interconnections between things, which is what system science is, you can really come closer to understanding truth. So anyway, the net of it was in 2003, the genome project ends, biology goes through a revolution. We find out we're not our genes. It's much more complex. And a field emerges called systems biology. So I was literally walking back through MIT and an advisor of mine said, Shiva, you know, you got to come back to MIT. You know, you really know how to do computing. You're a computational guy. There's this amazing uh, field called systems biology. You should come back and contribute to this. So I came back at the age of 40 to do my PhD back at MIT. I was running a very lucrative, lucrative company. And the goal was, could you mathematically model the whole human cell on the computer? Now think about this. Up until 2003, the way drug development companies, and this comes back to the whole uh, jabs and the masks, et cetera. So up until 19, so if you look at how pharmaceutical companies make money, the way they make money is they work on something called a pharmaceutical drug. What's a pharmaceutical drug? A pharmaceutical drug is a compound that doesn't occur in nature. It's a synthetic compound that's made in a lab. Today, pharmaceutical companies are around 60,000 compounds, okay, in a library. And the way they do pharmaceutical drug development typically takes 13 years, $5 billion in a test tube. And I'm sort of simplifying this. They'll put cancer cells and they'll test one of those 60,000 compounds. And if they see something occur, oh, wow, this looks like it's killing the cancer cells. They'll apply for a patent. And then they have 20 years to get that drug to market, right, to make money off of it. So they'll do more test tube testing, maybe two or three years, and they'll kill a bunch of animals another three years. And if they don't kill too many animals and they think the drug's not toxic, then they'll go to the FDA and say, hey, we want to test on humans. And they, if they get the allowance, 
First, they test on maybe 50 humans. That's called phase one. Maybe 1,000 humans, phase two. Maybe uh, 10,000, 20,000 humans, phase three. So that's the FDA testing process. That takes about 13 years, $5 billion. When the drug comes out, it has side effects. And they have seven years because patent life is 20 years to make all their money back. So if you really look at the reality over the last 10 years, how many people think pharmaceutical companies are making money, by the way? Okay. All right. The reality is over the last 10 years, and we knew this back in 2003, pharmaceutical companies have been losing top line revenue. Their entire model is broken. Meaning if a pharmaceutical drug hurts you, remember you can sue them, right? It takes 13 years. So Pfizer, for example, if you look at their revenue numbers since 2013, they've lost $25 billion in top line revenue. Let me repeat that. They, they made about 65, 67 billion in 2012, 13, and they made about 40 billion in 2020. They've lost close to $25 billion in top line revenue, okay? The news doesn't talk about this. We know that pharmaceutical companies have trillion dollar industries failing because their entire model of developing these synthetic drugs is failing. Every year they put more and more money, 30% per year into R&D and they're finding less and less new molecules. In fact, the FDA is not even allowing their molecules because of their side effects. So pharmaceutical companies, you know, need a different way to either produce drugs or they need to move into a different industry. So in 2003, when I came back to MIT, the idea was if we could create a technology that you could use a computer to mathematically model diseases on the computer, then you could save six years, right? You don't have to kill animals. You could find out the stuff that doesn't work. You're not gonna hurt people, right? So that was the invention I created for my PhD work. It was called CytoSolve, C-Y-T-O, which means cell and solve. So I spent five years, four, four years back at MIT creating this very innovative technology, which no one thought could be done, just like email back in 78. And the technology, I created a way that we could look at the scientific research in any field like Alzheimer's or cancer. Um, and we could find all, we could take all the research together, you see? And we could extract the findings the molecular pathways, mathematically model it. So I was able to starting to, I could model Alzheimer's, I could model arthritis, I could model cancer. In fact, in 2012, as a proof of concept, we used this technology to model pancreatic cancer. We went through all the, you know, generic drugs for cancer out there and we did combinations and we found a combination without killing animals on the computer that did better than the leading drug and we actually got it allowed by the FDA. And I just did this as a test to show the power of this technology. And I thought pharma would embrace this, but frankly, they don't wanna embrace anything new because they actually make a lot of money by doing things in a dinosaur way, right? The stock market rewards them phase one, phase two, phase three. Anyway, so that was my journey. And 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 what I do today is using Cytosol, um, I go back to my roots. My grandmother was a traditional uh, healer using traditional medicines. So we are actually using Cytosol to look at all the amazing herbs and botanicals in the world. The problem with a lot of the vitamins and herbs out there, you have a lot of snake oil there. But with Cytosol, we can actually understand uh, we can model molecular pathways and we're actually finding combinations of natural products that have profound effects, but validating with science. Okay. For example, we just published a paper just a few days ago where we found out how green tea 
lowers the cytokine storm and can increase transplant tolerance, okay? So anyway, that's what we do. And we just created a, 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 a we went through thousands of natural ingredients. We modeled trillions of biochemical reactions and we found two naturally occurring ingredients which have a profound effect on pain and inflammation. So that's my full-time job. But throughout my life, I've been very, I've always been a political activist. When I was 18 at MIT, you would probably think I was, uh, you know, there's a, I organized a food service workers at MIT because they weren't getting treated well. I made sure more poor blacks and poor whites uh, and women got to come to MIT. We led massive protests. There's a picture of me and my PhD graduation saying US out of Iraq when it wasn't that popular to you know, be an anti-war activist against Iraq. Um, I've exposed uh, academic corruption. Um, and so I never believed in the left or the right. I thought both of these political parties, parties were scumbags. I never voted in my life. By the time I was 18, I'd read all sorts of revolutionary politics. And so I never voted. And, uh, but I believed in the bottoms up movement. So you would always see me as an activist. I studied political theory, but I was very interested in understanding when you looked at the history of movements, why movements would grow and then suddenly they would fail, right? So you look at the Paris Commune of the 1700s. You even look at the early parts of the Russian Revolution for about 16 months, it was going the right way, right? Um, the American Revolution, even when the Indian people in India were rising up, right? And then the British, you know, eventually that was misled. So I was a very, uh, in addition to being a student of science, I was a very important student of political movements, but always a ground activist, you know? Uh, there's a picture of me burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT. People would think I was a lefty because MIT had investments in uh, South Africa. But um, the first time I ever voted in my life, even though I was a citizen for many, many years, was when Trump ran. Now in Trump's rhetoric, I saw someone who was willing to take on the establishment. At least he spoke that way, right? Lock her up, right? Uh, and so on, drain the swamp. And I voted for Trump in 2016. And then in 2018, I ran for office against a woman called Elizabeth Warren. We ran as uh, an independent because the Republicans in Massachusetts are completely corrupt. They didn't want an outsider like me. They had a guy whose name was uh, Deal. We called him Dirty Deal, who had actually stolen Trump's own data here, okay? And our campaign was only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian. And we forced Elizabeth Warren to take the DNA test. Okay, it wasn't Trump, it was us. You couldn't leave Massachusetts without seeing these huge billboards which said only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian. In 2020, I decided to run as a Republican. And we thought the Republicans would embrace us, but they don't because the Massachusetts GOP is in cahoots with the Democratic Party. We had 3,000 volunteers. Now, just think about this, 3,000 volunteers. And our volunteers weren't like students. They were everyday working people like all of us here. People did thousands of standouts. We had 20,000 lawn signs, 10,000 bumper stickers, huge billboard signs. We raised $2 million, $5, $10. Some of you may have even donated all over the country. And on this was in the Republican primary on September 1st, 2020. I mean, we were campaigning everywhere. The Republican establishment had found some fool to run against us. No one even knew this guy. In fact, his website was cock for Senate. That's how good his branding was. Literally, KOC for Senate. Um, we had, we were everywhere. You couldn't leave Massachusetts without knowing who Dr. Shiva was. So the word on the street was landslide everywhere. 
So on September 1st, 2020, the results are coming in. One of the counties in Massachusetts is called Franklin County, where all the votes, primarily most of the votes, or if not all of them are hand counted paper ballots. Well, we win there, all white working class neighborhood. Everyone loved our campaign. We win by, we win by 10 points. In every other county which had machine counted votes, we lose 60-40, 60-40, 60-40, 60-40, 60-40, 60-40, and so on, okay? Now, I never believed election fraud took place in the United States. I only thought that took place in third world countries, right? And so that began me applying all my four degrees at MIT, my engineering skills to understanding voting systems. And one of the things I came to understand was that when you put a ballot into these voting machines, they take a picture of the ballot. It's called a ballot image. And then the machine looks for the dots on that. According to a law that was passed nearly 50 years ago, 52 USC 20701, which by the way, encourages audits, okay? Which it says it's it's good, it, an American will do audits. For, but for 22 months after an election, the the ballot images are supposed to be saved, okay? For auditing. So I write, now you have to understand, I had probably about 2 million followers across Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, probably uh, about 400,000 followers on Twitter. So we, I sent a letter to the state election director of Mass. In fact, we went there to her office with a camera and we said we would like the ballot images. The election official says, what are you talking about? He goes, we turned that feature off. We don't have those ballot images. So we issue a formal public records request. And 10 days later, in a series of email interactions, a state election director, her name is Michelle Tassinari, she responds back and she says, we don't have to save ballot images by Massachusetts law. Remember, I'm, I'm running for U.S. Senate federal office. I said, please show me the statute. She doesn't answer that, diverts it to some other issue. And I said, you violated federal law. This entire election is null and void. Those four emails, two of mine, two of hers, I put up on Twitter. They go viral. Okay. I said, Massachusetts deleted ballots dash ballot images. Okay. Well, within days of putting that up was September 24th, one day later, I'm thrown off Twitter. Now, remember, we had moved our campaign from a primary campaign. We, we had so much support, we said we'll do a write-in campaign. So we're bona fide candidates. In fact, our campaign slogan starting September 25th was stop election fraud. We put out nearly 2 million flyers. That's how strong our ground base was. I mean amazing people bottoms up. Trump never helped us. The Massachusetts GOP never helped us. No one helped us. Okay. Because we had our own independent base among people who really love this country. So um, here I'm thrown off Twitter, which is the platform for political office and a very fake news organization, which does fact checking. And you can look them up called lead stories does a hit job on me. They say Dr. Shiva's lying, ballots weren't deleted. I never said ballots, I said ballot images. And in that article, they said they had communicated to the Secretary of State of Massachusetts and they had said they had contacted Twitter to throw me off. Let me repeat that again. The government of Massachusetts had contacted Twitter to tell them to throw off a US Senate candidate off their platform, okay? 
this is the grossest violation of the First Amendment, right? The First Amendment, the highest form of protection was for political speech. I have every right to criticize a government official. In fact, our campaign was against election fraud. So anyway, I've tried to find a lawyer in Massachusetts who take it on. We couldn't find anyone. I had to file the lawsuit myself. Pro se, it's called. The judge decided to hear our lawsuit, which was the first big victory. No one picked it up. You know, we know Tucker Carlson. He didn't pick it up. So I go into court. It's me against three lawyers. And the judge had me read case law called a very famous law called the Blum test, where I had to prove that the government, that Twitter was acting as a state actor. When they took instructions from the government, they became a part of the state. You follow? It's a very interesting area of law. So I proved that. I argued that in a, it, it was supposed to be a 20 minute hearing. It ended up going for four hours. And in that lawsuit, what we uncovered was the young social media director cross-examination, she blurts out to us that when I was, when I put up those four tweets or those four emails, the state election director told her to contact Twitter through a special portal. Okay. And, and, the, and the judge said, what do you mean? She goes, we have a partnership with Twitter. We have a trusted Twitter partnership. That means the government has VVIP access to Twitter. And he goes, what are you talking about? So the government used their special portal access, which was set up in 2018, and I'll get more into this, to contact Twitter, okay? And then we find out the state election director, Michelle Tassinari, who I was cr criticizing, a government official, which I have every right to do, which you have every right to do. That's why we broke away from the monarchy, right? So we could critique our government. She had also contacted another organization. Everyone should remember this acronym, NASED. National Association of State Election Directors. The organization, which is the one which figures out if voting machines should be certified or not. And it's an association of all 50 state election directors who also have a Twitter partnership. So she also contacted them and she was supposed to be their president that year. They also contacted Twitter. So not only did the government of Massachusetts call, but the force of the uh, state election directors of 50 governments to throw off a US Senate candidate in the middle of his election. The judge was appalled. He he gave me all the terms of my preliminary injunction. He said, A, you, you, you cannot do this anymore. You cannot contact Twitter. If you have a problem with Dr. Ayadure, Dr. Shiva, you go on Twitter and argue it out. He, he said, I don't know if you know, that's called the First Amendment, okay? Anyway, I'm back on Twitter after the election's over, November 4th. And between November 4th and February 1, I'm tweeting away on all sorts of issues on my displeasure with the jab, right? Displeasure with the mask mandates. But on February 1st of 2021, I once again share those four emails. And within 17 minutes, I'm thrown off Twitter for good. So we went back into court again. We told the judge, your honor, when they took me off Twitter the first time, they had put in the algorithms. So anytime I critique the state election director, I'd be thrown off. Anyway, the end result of that was, uh, the judge said, I want you to bring Twitter into my lawsuit, into the courtroom. So now on May 20th, it was me against, no lawyer wanted to take this on, me against seven lawyers, three from Twitter, three from the government, and one from NASID. The night before that lawsuit, I wish I had the documents here, we discovered playbooks. And everyone should listen to this. These playbooks, John is going to bring it, were documents that were created at Harvard in 2018 and I had found it the night before. 
they were documents which originally the theory was laid down in England and then tested in India and Australia and then in Taiwan. It was a Twitter partnership where government has a partnership with Twitter, with social media companies. And what we discovered was in 2018 at Harvard, Belfer School of Defending Democracy, a project who's headed by Robbie Mook, who's Hillary Clinton's former, you know, you know, former campaign manager, and also a rhino from Romney's campaign. Both of them had gotten together and they created this defending democracy project, a very Orwellian term. And they had decided that they needed to censor Americans. And they created two playbooks. One of them is called the Election Influence Operations Guide for State and Local Officials. And this playbook, it'll, it'll freak the hell out of you. It lays out step by step by step how you identify a American citizen who's a threat, how you put their severity, how you will monitor them, surveil them, and how you will throw them off Twitter, okay? And John just got me this and this, and you can find it, and we, we, we've exposed it, and here, here's one of the playbooks, okay? It's called the Election Influence Operations Playbook for state and local officials. And what this playbook has right up front, it says, someone is an enemy of the state if they say that an election official is corrupt, quote unquote, that's what it says in there. If you say an election official is corrupt, that is grounds for you to be seen as an influence operator. It's the CIA stuff. So when I went into court on May 20th, I held this playbook up and I said, your honor, all of these defendants have acted like they don't know each other. In fact, their names are in this playbook as authors, Twitter's legal counsel, the defendants, all of them, and they have created the censorship infrastructure. The next day, the judge comes into office because he spent all day reading this, and he said, this lawsuit will go down in history as a law school case that will be taught in every constitutional class. Again, no press picked up on our lawsuit. Trump didn't help us. Obviously, the Democrats didn't, right? We were fighting the real historic lawsuit here. And eventually, the judge said, you know, would you like a lawyer? You've done all this on your own. The net of it, it was we took on a lawyer. And then we discovered another document which said that I was being surveillance since June of 2020, along with six other people who were considered the most important threats because here's an MIT PhD credit. The way they said you were a threat was high credibility, high engagement, and high volume. So I fit that perfectly, right? So the net of this lawsuit was the judge thought he got freaked out. He goes, oh my God, this guy doesn't just want to go back on Twitter. He wants to take down all of these people because that's what our claims were. So he thought he would bribe me using this lawyer for me to drop all my other claims. And homie wasn't willing to play that game. Okay. And what ended up happening was he sealed our lawsuit and he made sure that the diagrams and everything we found were sealed. Anyway, the point I'm telling here is that during this entire process, from September to that, in, in addition to doing this lawsuit, no one funded us. We, we did the computational analysis, like Rod said. We exposed what occurred in Michigan for Trump. We, we exposed what occurred in Arizona and recently. Now, what was fascinating to me was during that entire process, when we were exposing all of this, no one funded us. I was doing this, you know, I put all my businesses on hold, you know, everything we sacrificed for this country. And what we noticed was on November 4th, while I was teaching a class here, Mark Meadows, everyone know who Mark Meadows is? Chief oh, yeah. of Staff at yeah. Trump's campaign calls us. 
And he says, how can we help you? Because I had just done the Michigan analysis, which was going viral. And these guys, you know, and and the the the, the true patriots saying, oh, my God, Dr. Shiva is fighting for us. So Mark Meadows calls me, he goes, how can we help you? I go, give me data and I can expose every state's audits. Well, days go by, never gives us any data. Rona McDaniel's office calls us. So the, the White House called us, then the Trump, uh, then the RNC called us. I said, give me data. They don't give us any data. Weeks go by. Then I tweeted out because I started really wondering if Trump was serious. I said, dear President Trump, dear Mr. Biden, I said, I have unequivocal evidence that the election systems in this country are completely compromised. Eric Trump reached out to me on Twitter. And I said, Eric, I don't think anyone really is serious about this. He said, talk to our lawyer at the Trump campaign. So I'm dealing with three organizations. The Trump campaign had the data. They never gave it to us. So at that point, I came to the, and by the way, all these three parties started uh, putting out emails on fight election fraud. You may have gotten some of them. They raised $300 million during that period. During the first quarter of this year, they raised another $75 million. So my end conclusion was that these people are making money off election fraud. They are not serious. So why do I share all this with you? I voted for Trump. Many of you probably did. Okay. Trump, you know, uh, and I had to unfortunately also critique Trump because I started seeing him potentially as a not so obvious establishment because the campaign was lock her up. Nothing got done. Right. The next date was, well, that was for the campaign. Now we move on. Number one. And you have to start looking at these things. We can't be in a cult. Right. Next thing it was. I'm against Big Pharma, yet he took money for the inauguration. We collected nearly 200. We're, we're the ones who started the Fire Fauci campaign. If you remember that, we took nearly 200,000 signatures. We sent all the evidence on Fauci. In March of 2020, I was the first one to expose Fauci because my field, as you know, is systems biology. Fauci is a complete fraud. Rand Paul didn't say anything then. None of these doctors said anything then. One of the most important things in life is to do the thing, the right thing at the right time, not when, not a year later. Okay. So very important to understand Roger Beausoleil and Alan McDonald. You remember him, Alan McDonald's McDonald was a guy who said, Hey, I don't want the space shuttle to fly. I'm not going to sign off on it because those O-rings aren't going to work. He was vilified. Okay. Alan McDonald just passed away about a couple of months ago. He goes, one of the most important things in life is to do the right thing at the right time. Well, now you have all these congressmen saying, oh, we're against the jab mandates and the masks and you know Fauci, blah, blah, blah. I get emails from Rand Paul saying, give me money. Well, where was he a year ago? So this is very important for movements to understand. So what I have also been doing separately, remember I'm very interested in political theory and very interested in systems. So after I ran for Senate, our campaign slogan was truth, freedom, and health truth, freedom, and health. That's not a slogan. What it is, is it's going back to the universal laws of nature. Freedom is a aspect of nature called movement of things called transport. And I'm teaching you very simply system science. Movement, that is a phenomenon in general systems theory called transport, freedom. Without movement of matter or information or energy, the world would just stop, right? Imagine if the earth didn't rotate, right? Movement of me being able to move from point A to point B without a jab passport. Movement 
of me being able to share information with you without the government and Twitter and Facebook intermediating, right? Freedom is the aspect of transport in nature. When you have freedom, you can do science to convert hypothesis into truth. That's called the scientific method. If you don't have freedom, you can't do the conversion process, which is called getting to truth. So without freedom, we can't get to truth. And then if you have freedom and you can get to truth, you can figure out what's right for the health of your body, the health of the infrastructure, et cetera. And that's the health aspect, which is the infrastructure. Truth, freedom, and health is a systems phenomenon related to transport conversion storage. So what we started doing was we realized that you can't trust these politicians. They'll even take a good thing and make money off of it. So we today have a movement called Truth, Freedom, and Health. And when you take this scientific approach, what you understand is that we have a goal, truth, freedom, and health. In order to achieve our goal, one of the important things that you realize from systems theory, by the way, all the elites in the world, they teach all their intelligentsia system science. And system science is a nuclear weapon of the modern world. If you do not understand system science and you think we're gonna win a movement, you're out of your mind. It's like we're shooting with bows and arrows and they have a nuclear weapon. So one of the most important innovations that I believe that I've contributed right now, separate from email and Cytosolve, is over the last 50 years, I've been able to take the theory of systems, organize it into a curriculum where I can teach people in about an hour to two hours. So you don't have to go to MIT for two, 20 years. But that system science is a foundation of understanding how do we build a political movement? There will be no revolution without the right revolutionary theory. Just like you can't build a bridge without understanding Newton's laws, maybe you'll get lucky and you'll build a bridge and maybe you'll maybe you'll get lucky and you can build an airplane, but, but it may fall out of the sky. But once you understand Bernoulli's principle, you can do that. Once you understand Maxwell's equations, you can build a motor. And we're not gonna be able to build a movement without understanding the physics of how a movement works. So what I wanna share with you is one of the things that comes out of that is Movements get built bottoms up. No movement in the, in the history of human beings fighting for their, their freedom has ever emerged top down from a politician, et cetera. And that's the opportunity we have today. If we, first of all, study the science of systems and everyone should go to truthfreedomhealth.com and we've made it easy. We have 60,000 people. It's a global movement now. We're training people. We wanna teach people to teach others. And one of the central pieces, first you have to learn the theory, but we have to go local to go local to go local. So when Rod said that you guys were doing this, with the political theory, we can explosively grow this movement. And one of the important things here is that we learn, go back to the 1800s in the United States. The American working class is the most fearsome working class to the global elites. Why? Because the American working class had the First Amendment. It's gone right now from what our lawsuit has shown has fortunately still the second amendment. So in the 1800s, there was a great upheaval in the, in, the, in the United States. In fact, by the 1900s, there were revolutions brewing all over the world. In India, the Indian workers wanted to oust the British. In Russia, the Bolshevik revolution in the early stages, which was the working class was rising up. Okay, we're not talking about Stalin, but I'm talking about when workers were rising up before it was taken over by Stalinism. When you look at the American working class movement before the D Democrats and Republicans got involved in 1886, just like us, 
four American workers were hanged, hanged in America, in the Haymarket, Chicago, for fighting for the eight-hour workday. There was a revolution going to take place in this country. Women were the leaders of that revolution starting in the mid-1800s in places like Lowell, Massachusetts, in places like New York, and I'm sure in places like uh, Portland. There was a bottoms-up movement. In 1900, you know, the measles infection rate was about 14 out of 100,000. By 1948, it at 99% of the measles infections rate had disappeared. Why? Because the American working class was rising up and they scared the shit out of the elites. And, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was a racist and an elitist, was forced to deliver infrastructure. Child labor was eliminated. We started getting sanitation. We started getting hygiene. We started getting the eight-hour workday. And water systems were built. That didn't occur by Democrats or Republicans. It was, a, it was out of working people, striking, building bottoms up trade unions. And that scared the shit out of the elites. So the growth of the America, anything that occurred in America between 1940 to 1980 was the growth, um, the American pie grew during that period. Why? Because the American working class was fierce. Nearly 100 million people struck and we nearly had 11,000 strikes bottoms up. But in 1950, the right wing and the quote unquote Republicans colluded with the Democrats. They wanted to make sure a bottoms up movement would never occur again. They never wanted working people organizing independently of the establishment parties. So they started creating the McCarthy era. And you have to listen to this. So they created the Red Scare. If you said workers unite, you must be a Marxist and a communist and from Russia. And that created the conditions for the Democrats, the people like Bernie Sanders and the AOCs to take over the workers movement top down and they created the unions. So by 1970, the top down unions basically told people not to strike and they helped the right and the left work together. So 1980 till today, there's only been maybe about 900 strikes, 2 million people on the streets fighting. And during this last 40, 50 years, the American pie split into two American pies, one for the 5% and one for the 95%, small pie and a big pie for the Jeff Bezos's. Over the last year, 600 billionaires doubled their wealth to $2.3 trillion. Over the last 50 years, $50 trillion got transferred from the American working people upwards. Yes, there was socialism for the elites. And where we are at today, if you want to understand it, where we are today is it's the jabs, the mandates, the censorship, the elections being selections is the end process, is the end process of a long process that has been taking place in American history. It's the end process. And it's basically about power, profit and control. We're going back to slavery. It's saying you can't travel from village A to village B without the king's acknowledgement. You can't you don't have the right to speak. But we have to understand it's not just the anti-vax movement. It's not just the anti-mask movement. It's not just the anti-censorship. Every Tom, Dick and Harry on the Republicans now is for election integrity. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. We have a guy here that I ran against who Trump just endorsed, who said Trump's election was not stolen. And he actually committed the election fraud against us. So you have a lot of bullshit going on right now. And the reality is, if we want to win, we have to go back to a central principle, bottoms up movement, 
working people unite. We got to go beyond left and right, beyond black and white, truth, freedom and health, working people unite. So when Rod told me you guys were doing this, you know, Southwest workers struck. You have the construction workers in Australia who defied their union, who told them, you know, get the jab. We have to recognize that Republicans and Democrats are one. It's hard pill to swallow. And even if there's some nice people in that, fine. But the reality is no gains are going to be made unless we build a bottoms up movement. And if you have illusions about this, because why vote for anyone if the election systems are, 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 are controlled? The issues that we're facing today are fundamental issues. Censorship, you know, complete slavery of people telling how they can move, what they can, what they have to wear. And then fundamentally, these election systems. The solutions to this are not going to come from elections. They're not going to come from lawsuits. They're not. They're going to come from the fierce re-rising of the American workers bottoms up. That's how they're going to come. And that's the only way they're going to come. And we have to, no matter what these politicians say, look, I've been involved in the middle of the Arizona audit. You know, I'll help these guys. I'll do the analysis. But I've seen the gamesmanship, you know. You know, will the attorney general do something? Hopefully he will. But he's also looking at, you know, he's got to watch which way the wind blows. We don't have 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. The way that history gets accelerated is through revolutionary bottoms up movements of when we flex our muscles. Look, if the nurses strike tomorrow, they're not going to be able to get enough people. If the American truckers forget the AFL-CIO and the Teamsters. That's only 15% of the truckers. 85% of the truckers in the United States are small businesses. So we need to get the political theory straight. Without the right political theory, it's like if you hit a ball and you're off by two degrees, it's going to go 200 yards off. So I can't, I guess I can't overemphasize as someone who came from the caste system. Look, in India, everyone thinks Gandhi was a great guy. Gandhi was a scumbag. Okay. In 1920s, the Indian workers wanted to rise up and have a good revolution. Gandhi was parachuted in, white robe. He was an actor. And he misled the Indian working people, told them to shut the hell up. It was good to get their heads beaten in as though nonviolence was something profoundly good. And he basically transferred power from the British elites to the Indian elites. So it's not going to be billionaires. It's not going to be celebrities. It's going to be us. And that's where we're at. And we're not going to get clear on this until we have to have the ground movement. But you have to study the political training. You have to read and you have to do. You have to be the blacksmith and you have to be the scholar. And that's where we're at. That's the message I wanted to share with you. But we have to build a bottoms up movement. The election systems are completely a sham. They have so many areas in the election systems they can manipulate them. That's where we're at. These election systems, I mean, I knew more as an 18-year-old kid than I knew as a 50-year-old running for Senate. They're completely rigged. We won that election in Massachusetts. And you have these contradictions. And it's only going to be us who's going to do it. So I encourage everyone, you know, we have a lot of truth, freedom, and health people in Massachusetts. But one person who understands political theory well is equivalent to an army of a million. You could have a million people on the streets, but they could be misled. That's what happened with the civil rights movement. The Kennedys brought in Martin Luther King. They controlled him. Okay. The not so obvious establishment is the biggest killer. 
And the sooner we learn that, we will have an explosive movement that will change the world fast. But there's always been the establishment and the not-so-obvious establishment. In the quote-unquote anti-vaccine movement, it's been Robert Kennedy. Complete not-so-obvious establishment. When I got into the medical freedom movement, I found out he endorsed Hillary Clinton three times. Hillary Clinton is pro-vaccine. Hillary Clinton's pro-Monsanto. And he says, well, she's a Democrat. They always want to do backroom deals. They do not want to build a bottoms-up movement. And that's where we're at. And that's the wisdom we need. If we want to win, if we want to lose, we follow politicians, follow Republican or Democrat. It's the recipe for failure. We got to build a bottoms-up movement. We have to honor those working people of the 1800s. We have to honor the working people all over the world. And we better get our shit straight this time, okay? And we have a huge opportunity. Thank you. What's that? Oh, you, everyone? Dr. Shiva, we yeah. have a saying here in Citizens Restoring Liberty, and it is, it we didn't invent it here, but we picked it up. And it is, uh, we are the leaders that we've been waiting for, so be the leader. Exactly. Yep, that's, the issue is we wanna be catalysts, ultimately, because what we tell people in the Truth, Freedom and Health is, learn this and you gotta go neighbor to neighbor. So what we've done, which can support what you're doing is, you know, we, you know, fortunately, uh, 2002, I have a building here in Cambridge. I built my own data center. So everything we're building is in our data center. We don't put anything on Amazon. It's all hosted here. So we've created the educational model. We've created where leaders can have their own private YouTube channels here. And then more importantly, we're teaching people how to go on the ground, on the ground, on the ground. And I think that's, it's the only way to win. It's not sexy. It's not like, you know, you're hanging out with the Kardashians, right? But you go on the ground, neighbor to neighbor. That's how we're going to win. We're not going to win top down voting for these fools, left or right. I don't care how good they sound. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, I often said uh, that there is no revolution that's not a natural revolution. And it sounds like the bottoms up movement. And I just want to say that I'm absolutely stunned by your intellect combined with your sense of humor and also your common sense. Um, and I think it is going to be a grassroots bottoms up movement led by a leader named Dr. Shiva Idaray, 2024 for president. Well, listen, I can't run for president, right? But we don't need to run for president. You know, we need to build a movement. By the way, I just want to let all of you know. We have about, I, I, I'm also putting this out, we have close to about, uh, close to 1,200 people worldwide watching this uh, concurrently. But, uh, uh, and, but we have leaders and catalysts now in Australia, in New Zealand, in Japan. And so we can connect all of these people. But I, if I were to beg you guys for one thing, please learn political theory. Come on Monday evenings, come as many, but... If we can get people really understanding this and making sure that we can never allow uh, uh, the not so obvious establishment scumbags ever in our movements, they're the ones who mislead us. Every move, and, and the good news is typically there's been the establishment and the controlled opposition, but our movement now to exists to expose that. And that hasn't occurred typically in history. Typically people get screwed over and they go, oh my God, we got screwed over by blah, 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 right? And the establishment is very, very clever 
to find the not so obvious establishment in the civil rights movement. It was Martin Luther King in the Indian movement. It was Mahatma Gandhi. Right. And the left and the right now are playing with Bernie Sanders. And I would argue and I've been, you know, Trump, you know, has supported what I do, et cetera. But, you know, he better get his shit together. OK, because he surrounds himself with a bunch of fools, complete fools. So I've had to critique him. And and we have to because he didn't do shit to Hillary. He kept Fauci there. He did Operation Warp Speed. And you can see the video. He tells those people, I will walk with you to the Capitol. And he got in his SUV and he went the other way. You know who got locked up? People who supported him got locked up. Hillary did not get locked up. So we have to understand that it has to be us. It has to be. Absolutely. Well, it was an honor speaking to you all, but uh, let's build this movement. We have to build it. And and there's more of us than them. And look, we are the ones who do the election audits. We're the ones who do the math. We're the ones who do the we're the electricians. We're the engineers. We're the plumbers. We're the nurses and nothing. And we have to start honoring ourselves. Because the brainwashing that takes place on that freaking TV every day and every time you go through the shopping malls, they put up a picture of the stupid Harry and the stupid, what's her name, idiot, Megan and, and the kings and the queens and, and the celebrities. This is all brainwashing to diminish our own divinity. We have to go into ourselves and recognize that we are, a, you know, we are a divine spark of God. It is our responsibility to do this. That's what this is about. It's about all of us honoring ourselves. This is really about you. Ultimately, it's about your relationship with your creator. And the more you define that, because all of us are going to die one day, we're gone one day. Our history will be determined by what we did and the courage we had. Courage has always been the ingredient in history that has changed the course of history. So thank you. We got to win. We got to fight. We got to stand up, bottoms up. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Be well, everyone. What's that, John? What? Thank you. Be well. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Good night.